Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, the garments roiled in blood, will be used for burning and fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order to establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Thus far, God's word. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do rejoice before you that you have sent forth into the world the light of the world. He who is the bread of heaven come down. He who is the living water that pours forth from the rock. He who is God incarnate. Father, we marvel, even as these things are familiar to us, that God became flesh and dwelt among us, that God the Son in his humanity was crucified, dead and buried, raised again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Father, we know these things. We believe these things. Uh, we can rehearse them. We can speak of them, and we should. We, we celebrate them week by week, and yet, Lord, they are glorious, indeed marvelous, and in, in really beyond our full comprehension and understanding. And so, Lord, as we undertake this passage this morning, though these themes are familiar, Lord, give us fresh eyes. Uh, give us attentive hearts. Give us a renewed uh, interest and love for Christ, a renewed zeal. And may our hearts rejoice. Lord, give us hearts that rejoice. Let not the angels exceed us, for we are the redeemed. We are the ones who have had the yoke broken off our back and the burden lifted. We are the ones who have been set free. O oh God, may our voices of joy Rise up to the heavens, for there is seated the one who is worthy, even Jesus the Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Charles Morris writes back in November 2020, on, on the 20th of November. He says, back in 2015, I visited Handel's home in London to see the rooms where he composed. And while I was there, I spoke with Dr. Ruth Smith, a Cambridge scholar on Handel, and she explained the lyrics, the liberito, the words, were not written by Handel himself, 
but they were simply scripture texts arranged by Handel's friend, Charles Jennings. She goes on, he goes on writing, in a time of rising secularism and humanism in England, Jennings was a member of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, and he was a passionate evangelical believer. He believed that putting the gospel to music would, be, would communicate its truth, not just intellectually, but at a deep heart level. I think we can understand that. Music moves us. This libretto, the words, was made up entirely of Old and New Testament texts. Some of you know that. You've listened to the Messiah, and so you know that. Filled with Scripture. From the Old and New Testament texts, combined to present the entire Christian message in a single piece of music. And when it was finished, he took it to his friend, the great composer, George Handel. For 18 months, the libretto sat on Handel's shelf gathering dust until one day he took it down, dusted it off, and in three intense weeks, shut up in his flat on Brook Street, he composed the oratorio that made the words come alive. He barely ate or slept. He was completely engulfed in the creation of his music, and he wasn't alone. When he got to the Hallelujah Chorus, his assistant found him in tears, saying, I think I did see heaven open in the very face of God. Handel was not wrong. That's the end of the quote. Handel was not wrong. The gospel, we, in the gospel, we see heaven opened in the very face of God in Jesus Christ. The lyrics of the Messiah are drawn from many parts of Scripture, but the book of Isaiah is drawn from again and again, including this passage in chapter 9. Little wonder, then, that you find such Christ-focused passage as this one before us this morning. The gospel is that scarlet thread that runs right through the whole of the Scripture. And in this season when so many are running to and fro, It is wonderful to come back to a familiar text, many of you can quote this, to look on it again at the greatest story ever told. But it is more than a story. It is truth for all who believe it. It is the bedrock for living in our world so marred by sin. If our forefathers in the faith could visit our nation at this time, they would be confused. Yes, I think they'd be very confused. They would, they would figure out there's a celebration underway and some festive occasion is about. To, but what's it about? Yard lights, decorations everywhere, figurines. They might ask the question, is it about an old, fat, white-bearded man dressed like an elf? Or is it about babies or animals or donkeys or sheep or cows? There seems to be a big emphasis on buying. Stores are filled with people filling shopping carts. In many cases, spending money they don't have. What is happening, they might say? It would all be very confusing to our forefathers. And is the church even being helpful? What is Christmas? And why do people celebrate it? Some say we should not celebrate it. It's only a pagan holiday. Indeed, it's been hotly debated debated in Christian circles for generations. The early church did not celebrate it 
until there were challenges about the humanity of Jesus Christ. Then in the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church began to celebrate the birth of Jesus in a big way, adding to it things from pagan culture, such as icons and pictures and statues and superstition, and declaring this is the correct day and the only day that you can celebrate it on. So should we embrace or jettison the celebration? Well, let us look at the scripture, the only place we should go with such a question. I have four main headings. Isaiah's difficult assignment, God's promise of a coming one, a child is born, and the dominion of Messiah. Begin with Isaiah's difficult assignment. Isaiah 9 is the text. Um, and Isaiah, he was a man called to a hard task, a difficult undertaking. He, we, we just recently went through this alongside the book of John, as you remember. And you remember it was filled with judgments against nations, Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Egypt, Edom. It seems like that's what the book's about. But also against Jerusalem, I mean, Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms. And the people, they were not listening. Their ears were heavy and their eyes were shut. Isaiah serves as God's prophet during the reign of several kings. He lived a long time. He was king, a prophet during Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah's days. And Isaiah served God in the role of God's prosecutor of his sinful and rebellious people. Is that a job description that you'd submit your resume for? That he was a prophet called out by God. And so he came with charges and condemnations, judgments. He served during a time of tremendous disobedience and rebellion, idolatry, unfaithfulness. Sounds familiar. Sounds like our day. How many periods of time in history has it been the case? And yet Isaiah is blessed with a look into the throne room of God in Isaiah 6. I was reading the quote concerning Handel, and I thought of the similarities with what Isaiah himself went through. He's given glorious prophecies concerning the one who will come. Back in chapter 7, he's prophesying to King Ahaz that the one that will come will be born of a virgin, that he will come as the covenant Lord's faithful servant, that he will come as a suffering servant. We're familiar with that from Isaiah 53. And even in that same passage, he will come as a redeemer. Isaiah got to prophesy all these things. So we find chapter 9 nestled here in the midst of pronouncements of coming judgment. But here we find hope, a glorious passage foretelling the promise of a coming one. One long expected, we know, long expected all the way back from the book of Genesis. From the time in the garden when God himself foretold of the seed of the woman. Chapter 8 is about the invasion of Israel by Assyria. And there's warnings 
to the people to heed God, to repent and to return to their covenant faithful Lord. And then what follows are the verses before us in prophecy of punishment of Samaria and, and Israel. But then here are these seven verses in the middle of words of profound judgment. We have a profound announcement, a stunning announcement, which brings us to our second point, God's promise of the coming one. Someone very unique is coming, a very unexpected interruption in the midst of all this judgment. Verse 1 speaks of a people, a particular people in in Galilee, the Gentiles, the region that we know of as Capernaum. We know from the the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it was the, the focal point of Jesus' ministry. It's where he operated from and spent most of his time from, as he would also go out into other places. We're told in that passage that this one who's come will come to deliver God's people. Now you can imagine in that day they would be thinking, oh, to deliver us from the armies of our adversaries and foes. And certainly God had done that time and time again. If you know your Old Testament, the Lord did. But there's something that's missed, as we shall see. There's a greater foe. Verse 2 tells us about a people who walk in darkness. That's a dangerous thing to do, isn't it? Walking around in darkness. And yet we're surrounded by millions upon millions of people. Oh, the sun rises. There's daylight around them. And yet they are living their lives as though walking in darkness. They don't have clarity. They don't have purpose. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they're going. They're living their life walking in darkness. That's what he's talking about, a people walking in darkness. And it's the manner that they live in, darkness, spiritual darkness, ignorance, distress, more specifically, sin and misery. Look at chapter 8, verse 19. And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be, will be enraged and curse their king. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. That's the context. This is how the people are living. God's people are living in this manner. God has distressed them. This is judgment upon them. And they're responding against him with rages and curses. Everywhere they look is trouble, darkness, gloom, anguish. And then what's the result? They're driven even further into darkness. There's physical realities too, yes. But mostly this is about their spiritual condition. They're walking in darkness. They're physically overwhelmed. Because they're spiritually dead. What do you do for such a people? We notice that Isaiah speaks here in the present tent. 
even though these events are yet to happen. It'll be some 700 years from the time of Isaiah's glorious prophecy here before the people of that region of Capernaum see this great light walking in their midst. And then even then they don't recognize him for who he is. We would say unless the Spirit enlightens them. Even as Jesus told Nicodemus that it must be so. But it is so certain that it is going to happen that it's spoken of in the present tense. It reminds me of Paul in Romans 8 where he talks about the justified and the ends that they're glorified. We're not yet glorified. It's not in that past tense, but it's a reality. And here Isaiah is speaking in the present tense and those these, these things are happening because it is certain that they will happen. Well, what will happen? This coming one will bring light. Again, in verse 2, we say we see it says it's a great light. Here it is announced that Jesus, who is the light of the world, that's how John introduces him as he opens his gospel, that he is the light of the world. Jesus will come as light into this context of incredible darkness. It wasn't just that period of time that men dwelt in darkness. Men have dwelt in darkness throughout the generations. And it is Christ alone who brings the light. And Jesus will come as light and enter a world, enter a world darkened by sin. Jesus' light will penetrate the darkness of men's hearts. And he alone is able to do that. The Messiah would come into this particular region. Indeed, Jesus did come there preaching the light of the gospel. Remember in one of the gospels where uh, Jesus has been healing many and Jesus tells his disciples, we we need to move on. And they say, oh, but there's, there's so many more here you know, that are wanting to be healed. He says, no, we need to go on to the villages because for this purpose I have come to preach the gospel, to bring light, to fulfill this prophecy, dispelling the darkness. This coming one will do exactly that, dispel the darkness. The second part of verse 2, we hear that. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, Upon them a light has shined. This is always the case with light. It always overcomes darkness. It drives it away. Light and darkness cannot cohabitate. Children, you know that. Every time you walk into a room that's dark and you flip the light switch, does a struggle take place? Does darkness well up and say, no, no, light, you cannot disperse me? No, light always prevails. It drives away the darkness. And that is true spiritually. And the Lord Jesus Christ drives away the spiritual darkness. And that's the promise. Light and darkness cannot cohabitate. This coming one also will result, result in a glorious increase of joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as when men re, uh, rejoice when they divide the spoil. He uses two word pictures that would be familiar to them. 
This joy is, is a great joy. It's a multiplying joy. It's an increasing joy. It's not given out in a little measure and it remains that. Is that not our experience as believers? When we first believe, we have joy. But the longer we walk with the Lord, our joy increases as we understand more of who we are, what we were, and indeed what Christ has done. Our joy increases. This was being prophesied here. And indeed, as more around us are converted, the joy that's in the heart of the host increases. That's one of the beauties and the blessings in coming together on the Lord's Day, that our joy would be increased. God will do this. He's pleased to do so. Joy is a delightful thing, is it not? We're not talking about happiness, it's but for a moment, a, an emotion. We have joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances because of Christ. The joy is described in verse 3 as relates to things that are understood. There's that universal joy that all people know know when when it comes to the time of the harvest and and the fields have a harvest, that there's the increase from the earth that will be food to nourish you uh, families and sustain them until the next harvest. There's tremendous joy in the harvest. I remember as a young boy riding the combine with my uncle and watching the wheat pour in to the hopper right behind where the operator would drive and just a wonderment that as we were going across the field and the machine did its job and that hopper filled with so much wheat, whereas before all I saw was just what looks like you know, some stored standing grain. And there was an excitement. And then we would come to the end of the field and fill up a truck and do it over and over again. That's what we're talking about, the joy of the increase in harbor, of the harvest. And God's saying this, that this is something can unrelate to the joy of the harvest. But then he, he speaks of something else. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Nations go to war. They've been doing so since the beginning of time, it seems. Again, uh, reading through the scriptures this year, there's many times when Israel rebelled and they were nations that came out against them. And they had, at times, faithful kings. And um, I'm trying to remember who it was just recently with it was the faithful king, and uh, God said, go out to this place, and the armies that have come against you, they've come up from the south. He says, but you won't need to fight. I will fight for you. Just stand and watch. And indeed, God turned the three different forces, one against the other, and they ended up all slaughtering one another. And Israel looked over a battlefield where all their adversaries and foes were dead. And it took them three days to gather the spoil garments and gold and silver and on and on, great, great spoil and a tremendous joy. How much more so when the Lord fought the battle? And you can look around at your compatriots and fellow soldiers. No one's injured, no one's harmed because the Lord has done it all. Great joy. Jesus, or the prophet, is speaking this coming of this one who is Christ, that he will bring a, a joy like on that of the harvest and the gathering of the spoil, something that they could understand. This is exactly what happened when the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, we read him carrying the gospel into the Gentile regions. 
He'd go to the synagogues first. He'd go to the Jews, and they would reject their Messiah. And so he would turn to the Gentiles. And what was it that happened to the Gentiles? They rejoiced that this gospel message was even for them. Remember in Romans how Paul said this was one of the mysteries of God, that the gospel was not only for the Jews, but it was for the nations. All the nations in the Gentiles, they rejoiced with great joy that God would bring them even into the kingdom. That he would set them free. That he would bless them. This coming one also will result in a glorious liberty and an enlargement. We look at verses 4 through 5. For you have broken the yoke of his burden, the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. It was Gideon who went out to fight Midian. He only had 300. And yet the Lord gave a great victory. The rod of the oppressor was broken. We don't understand, we may understand soon, but we don't understand what it is to be oppressed by a foreign tyrant, a king who dominates, a people who are not of his own land, and his hand is heavy upon them. He takes what he wants to give to his own people. We've not experienced that. Israel experienced it over and over again. And these words would resonate with them. And when he speaks of the days, Midian and the rod of the oppressor, the Midianites coming out as they had been plundering Israel again and again in the time of the harvest to take what they wanted for themselves. But do you know there's a greater oppressor? There's a worse tyrant, sin death, Satan, and we're born into that. As children of Adam, we are born into the oppression of sin. And this one, this one who's coming, has come to set liberty, set at liberty those who are bound up in sin. A man might muster an army and have the forces of war to go and to put down a foreign nation invading him. But there is no man, no mere man, not one of us who have ever lived who is able to overcome sin. We're not able to break that yoke that is upon us. We're not able to escape from the bondage of sin. But Jesus Christ came to do that. This glorious one that Isaiah prophesies about. He came to do the impossible. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. This is the victory that he accomplished. It was the final victory. And thus we find this language here in verse 5. Uh, For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. His victory is so great. This will be the end of the battle. He will settle it once for all. Thus he cried from the cross, it is finished. And there will be no more warfare necessary. He has defeated the enemy. He has defeated his foe. And thus Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 with great joy, Where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? Because Christ has set us at liberty. Sin has ruined all men. But God came, and he has vanquished our foe. So it was prophesied by God in the garden to Adam and Eve, the only two human beings. 
yet on the earth. And after they had sinned, God said that he would send one who would be the seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head. This is what Isaiah is speaking of here, that battle, that victory. And how would it be accomplished? What was it that God foretold? Through the seed of the woman. And so we find that's what's in this passage, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. This is not said in a vacuum. It is said in the context of what I've referred to, Genesis 3.15. A child is born. The seed of the woman will come to accomplish this. And then it flows on from here. This is what was told to the king in uh, chapter 7, to King Ahaz. The Lord told him to ask for a sign, and he said, no, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't ask for a sign of the Lord. And so Ahaz gets rebuked for not doing what the Lord commanded to him. And so the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is who this child is. He's already been introduced. We know that this Messiah is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God come in the flesh. This birth then speaks of the beginning of the humiliation of God's only begotten Son. The same who is the mighty God is to be born a child. The Father gives his Son what condescension that God would stoop to the very to the very face of the earth, to come amongst men, even as we find in the accounts of the gospel, Luke and Matthew, and the humble circumstances, even the humble mother to whom he was born. The word yet was made flesh and dwelt among us. It is a prophecy of the God-man whom we speak of so often. Notice in the text he's freely given. Unto us, a son is given. Christ wasn't wrestled out of the hands of God because no man was seeking after God. No man ever seeks God. No man seeks salvation from God. But God stooped and freely gave. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he is born to us. He's given to men. Sinful, wretched men, not to angels. The angels herald his arrival, but he came to save men. His humiliation is for our salvation. God joined to human nature for the purpose of redemption. In order to save us, he had to be one of us. And so he came was conceived of the Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Not only was he humiliated, but he was also be he'll be exalted. That's one of the glorious things about Philippians 2. Paul talks about this humiliation and then says, Therefore, for this reason, God has also highly exalted him. You see something of the exaltation of Christ in this passage. He is the Son of God. And in this capacity, or he has... Uh, ability to do us a great kindness. In this, he is the perfect one to redeem us. He is the only one who can redeem us. And he is invested with the highest honor and power. He is the light who dispels our darkness. 
Oh, people of God, let us rejoice that there is one who came to deliver us from darkness, from sin, death, and the grave. We also see the dignity of the Son of God. What follows uh, is not, it's not so much um, names to call him. They are those things. But these names are given to show his character, his unique nature, and his distinguished work. His titles speak of the fullness of his work, the completeness of what he will accomplish. Who is this child? He is called Wonderful Counselor. For he is both God and man, perfectly the one to save his people from their sins. Jesus' love for his people caused the angels to be in wonder. No doubt time and time again as they watched from heaven on the earth as Christ dwelled dwelled amongst us and lived out his life that they were filled with wonder. I think one of the things that would cause them to wonder so much is that they saw him. He loves his people. Jesus loves his people. It began with God's will of the world that he gave his son. But Jesus loves his people, those who the Father gave to him before the foundation of the world. He loves us. And he was willing to be humbled, even humiliated, crucified, and dead. Do you marvel at this one? God with us, Emmanuel, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and indeed his reign. It is all wonderful. He's a wonderful counselor. He is fully human. The son of man, his most the title he most often took for himself. And he is humanity in his humanity. He is full of the Holy Spirit. This person is the very wisdom of God. For he listens to his Father. His ministry is to do all that the Father gave him to do. To say all that the Father gave him to say. So we heard over and over in John's Gospel He gives counsel to the children of men. He is eminently interested in our well-being. He's never at a loss for knowledge for our situations. We can go to him as his people, bringing our requests and petitions, making them known. He's a wonderful counselor. Let me ask you, do you listen to the counsel of this one who is the living word, who speaks, who is the word of God? Is he your wonderful counselor? Seriously, think about that. Is he your wonderful counselor? Is he the one you turn to with your troubles, with your questions? We can do so day by day. We can seek him every day. We can't wear him out or wear him down with our coming, with our questions and seeking of his counsel. It is there in his word. He is the very wisdom of God. Why go anywhere else why trust in the arm of flesh or more importantly more often we do why trust in your own vain imaginations we can go to the Lord we are but men sinful men the wisdom of man is foolishness to God this one who is a child is a wonderful counselor but he's also the mighty God Emmanuel, God with man, the Son of Man, yet fully God, 
God come in the flesh, a, a mystery. Uh, he is eminent in wisdom. He is also eminent in power, full of the Holy Spirit, without measure. All the power of God resides in him. He is full of the Holy Spirit. And so he is fully human, and his humanity is like unto ours, yet without sin, and yet he is the fullness of the power of God and the Holy Spirit, filling him up so he could do all that the Father gave him to do. And he alone is able to do everything that he purposed to do. No one can thwart him. No one can stop his hand. He is the one who spoke, and the whole worlds were created. The beginning of time. In him is life. He's the source and the sustainer. And with him we live and move and have our being. We just saw that so vividly in Exodus when the people were desperately needed water to be sustained in life. And the rock was struck and water poured forth. And that rock was Christ, the Lord and giver of life, pouring forth living water. We have seen how he is mighty God and humbling Egypt bringing Pharaoh very low. As our mediator, his arm is not short. My friend, if you're trusting in your own ability to save yourself, you're hoping against hope. You have no ability. You have no power. Are you working, trying to do more good than bad so that somehow God will accept you? It's impossible. We're desperately wicked. We are fools to think such our works are dung our righteousness is as filthy rags but here is one who is the mighty god and powerful to save and he alone saves indeed we come to jesus you come to jesus for salvation he is the mighty god who's strong to save and he saves to the uttermost who is this child he is also called the everlasting father this could be a little bit confusing. We want to be careful here to make a distinction because we know that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. And yet here this child is called the everlasting Father. The significance of the phrase then is this one who is eternally a Father. He's not, it's not saying that he is God the Father, nor is the Father the Son. So what's the meaning? The Father is speaking of the quality of the Messiah with respect to his people. He acts toward them like a father. Do we not hear him in his earthly ministry? Oh, my little children. It's the very language that he uses. And indeed, he represents and presents the father to all who believe. He rescues his children, those whom the father has given to them, and embraces them as a father who loves his children. He represents the father to us. We see the truth declared again and again. We're coming even to the end of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 63:16, we read, Concerning this one, doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham is ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer. From everlasting is your name. And then in Psalm 103 also, we are told, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. The quality of this fatherhood is defined by the word eternal. He is the father of eternity, and he presents the father to his people. He said, I and the father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the father. The meaning of this is this, thus, 
He is one who eternally is the Father to his people and supplies their needs. When Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd, he is announcing the very heart of this phrase. Here is tenderness and compassion and great condescension. Who is this child? He is also called the Prince of Peace. As a king over all, he rules and he defends his people. He preserves us in peace. He is our peace, having made peace through the blood of his cross with the Father. Remember Romans 5.1, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Peace, the one who Isaiah is announcing, who will reconcile his people to the Holy One of Heaven. Once he has accomplished this, it is this same Prince of Peace who keeps our hearts in perfect peace through the course of our lives, whatever the circumstance. The Redeemer has fought the battle. He's paid the price. He's vanquished the foe once and forever. And he gives this peace to his own, both now and forever. Do you know this peace that comes from Christ? Has he reconciled you to the Father? Then you know the peace that passes understanding. So to recap, this one who Isaiah has prophesied about his wonderful counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Why look anywhere else? There is no other like him. We look and we see him in this text, and perhaps like Handel, we weep for joy at such a scene as the veil here in some sense is pulled back concerning the one who is now come. Before he comes, there's this glimpse to see him in his majesty of who he is and his ministry that he was going to come to do. It is now done. It is complete. It is a reality. And we rest in it. Well, fourthly, the dominion of the Messiah. We're told in verse 7, the, the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom in order to establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward and forevermore. This is what God promised a David. He says, I will give you a son who will sit on your throne forever. Jesus Christ is that son of David. As the Messiah, he is the one who is ruling and reigning, conquering men's hearts. Indeed, wherever the gospel is preached, he is setting men free and bringing them under his dominion. His kingdom cannot be stopped. His will will never be hindered. And of his government there shall be no end. This is what Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16. Even the gates of hell, that is the power of the evil kingdom, cannot prevail against my church. I will build it. This is the dominion of Messiah. And his government's a peaceable government. It's an agreement with the character of him being the prince of peace. He rules in men's hearts so that we are at peace with our creator. And it is a rightful government because the Father has given it to him. It was the promise to David now fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a kingdom that he rules from the holy hill. Remember Psalm 2 that we sing. What was the warning that goes out to the rulers of the nations? Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. He rules over all. 
It's a well-administered government also. We're told here he to, go, to order it. This wise counselor wisely governs. He has provided three spheres of his reign, the family, the church, and the state. It is especially see, we especially see this government of Christ in the church with officers, elder and deacon. He has given his commandments to those who love him to keep these, his rule. He erects civil governments among men and he removes them. His will is accomplished and no one can thwart what he's doing. Nations rise and they fall. They come and they go. That's what we learn from history. No nation endures forever. But the church does. We shall be here. The church will be here to the end of the age and on into eternity. Verse 7, it says it's an everlasting government from that time forward and forevermore. It's growing. It's expanding. His people are being blessed and receiving blessing. He multiplies unto his own what they need. He extends this blessing even into eternity. We, I has not seen or ear heard the, the blessings that await for us when we enter into his presence in heaven. His reign is felt throughout all of the earth. It is felt in heaven. It is felt in heaven in hell we must ask what vantage point shall we behold his reign in eternity shall it be from heaven or shall it be from hell God himself is undertaken to do this the verse closes out verse 7 the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this this is the father's doing he has the power to do it his purpose to do it you cannot stop him. He has covenanted with the Son to do it. And the Son covenanted with the Father to do it. And it has been brought to pass. He has accomplished it there at the cross. And you can be sure that God jealously guards his purpose. He does so for his own glory and for the blessing and the good of his church. See how great is his interest in his people? See how he has set his heart on his own on you, sister, brother, child of God. So the current events of our day they will not upset his plan. They are part of his plan. He is ruling and reigning. The affairs of our day are just as much under his dominion as they were in all the previous millennium. So we conclude with such a glorious promise and a glorious purpose. It all began with a babe born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. It was necessary. It was essential. The Son of God became the Son of Man. And we look on human flesh, and from then on, he is always known as the God-Man. Fully God and fully man. Can we celebrate this? Yes! We celebrate the Incarnation. It's essential. It's absolutely essential. We dare not be caught up in superstition nor idolatry, but we praise God always for the birth of Emmanuel, that God came down from heaven to be with us. Little wonder that George Handel was so caught up in the wonder as he composed his glorious music. It was the subject that was before him. Thus he said he felt like he had seen into heaven. Indeed, we do see in heaven. We see Christ here, portrayed before us as he is appointed in the supper. Do this in remembrance of him. Here we see Christ as he is appointed till he comes. We see that he was 
fully man and fully God according to his appointment in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Remember the bread and the wine point to his humanity. He was fully man and our Redeemer. We will do so until he comes again. Indeed, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do rejoice that you have come to set your people free. We marvel, Lord, that the Holy One, the Son of God, would stoop to come to earth to save miserable, wretched, unworthy, undeserving sinners. And yet it was your purpose that you would be glorified. And Lord, we glorify you now as we begin to the call to worship. We ascribe unto you glory. May our lives be lived out for your glory. May we demonstrate your glory in how we live by living dependently upon that one who is the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, mighty God. Oh, Lord God, blessed be your holy name for giving us your son. In Jesus' name, amen.